I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Stop it. Get back. You're not anger. Abort. Abort. I don't know how to feel feelings that aren't anger anymore. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. Welcome back, witches. It's been a while since we've done a book episode, and we are stoked to be bringing you our discussion of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Part 1. At this point, considering the rate at which Rowling keeps churning out new material, we're just going to go ahead and stop predicting when we'll run out of books. Um, Let's just say for now that you're not getting rid of us anytime soon. That's right. Between new plays, new short story collections, new forthcoming movies, plus all that fandom stuff we keep promising to talk about, you're stuck with us and we're stuck with each other, despite the fact that we now live hundreds of kilometers apart and are recording this using a complex combination of microphones and video chats and gumption. (laughs) We're literally separated by mountains, time zones, and a lack of vehicle. Can't stop, won't stop. Nope. A final brief note before we begin, we asked you to ask us questions about the new book using the hashtag WPCuriousChild. While we're going to tackle a number of those head-on in Final Revisions, you also asked a bunch of stuff that we were already planning on talking about, and so in some ways, your questions will weave through this entire episode. so beautiful. Those are enough backstage peeks for you. Let's get on with the show. We're making our theatrical debut today, and as the actors finish applying their grease paint, let's start things off with the sorting chat. 
Actors still wear grease paint, right? Surely. If I if I may, I just want to say that I got really emotional when I started reading this book. Um, I like yeah? cracked. Yeah, I cracked the spine and then I got really weepy. And then I wrote myself a little post-it. That I want to says, hear your little weepy post-it. It says, can I just say right here that this is a really emotional read for me? Just opening the book, I got teary. Oh, I had to write it on a post-it in case I forgot that I had feelings because my heart is so cold. I got to say the feels didn't hit for me until probably three quarters of the way through the first play through part one. Mm-hmm. I spent like the first big chunk of this feeling very very much like I was reading it because I had to for this podcast. Wow. And I am not sure if I would have finished it if I didn't have such a sense of uh, obligation to our beloved readers. Duty. <laughs> duty. Yeah, I did it purely out of duty. That's so interesting. Yeah, I don't know why I got emotional because in the lead up to the book being released, like I had no interest in pre-ordering it. I was not planning to line up at midnight to go pick it up. I kind of forgot about, I mean, okay, like a lot of stuff was happening at the time that the book came out. Like (laughs) you've been a bit busy. (laughs) Well, like you had just moved to a different city and then I moved to a different house and it was just like, (laughs) it was a lot. There were just a lot of changes happening. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, that was actually July 31st. The release date was, I'm pretty sure, your moving date. Mm -hmm. And I was in Kelowna that night. And it actually occurred to me because there's a a little independent bookstore in downtown Kelowna. Mm -hmm. And they were doing a launch party. And it occurred to me that I could, like, pop into the Kelowna launch party. And I was like, I don't have a costume. (laughs) Nah. Nah, I'm sleepy. So, yeah, I also, I didn't share the excitement And honestly, I found a lot of the conversations in the lead up to it quite boring. Mm -hmm. In general, I have found public media response to this play and to Rowling's decision to extend the Harry Potter world very boring. Hmm. Um, There's been a lot of like, oh, she's obviously just doing it for the money as though you can meaningfully separate out a creator's desire to keep creating something and their desire to make money as though one is pure and beautiful and the other is tainted and wrong i mean people literally do make that claim yeah they do and it's bs and it's boring i kind of love the um alternate universe where jk rowling finishes the harry potter series and then is like now i'm only in it for the art and does purely like wacky impressionist paintings here on in like she did, I mean, she published, she published the first book. You publish books to make money off them. Yeah. Otherwise you would write them and then give them a Tibetan sky burial. Like yeah. publishing is a market. Yeah. So like I found all of that very silly. And I also found people's sort of alarm at the fact that she was changing genres and media mm-hmm. also very silly. Mm-hmm. As though we don't live in a world in which narratives and characters are constantly traversing different media um star wars does it marvel does it dc does it you know game of thrones is doing it Mm -hmm. uh and so like why why would harry potter not be part of that as well yeah yeah so i don't know i sort of i felt i felt like i came into the book with already all of these sort of narratives about it that i found really uninteresting floating around in my head Mm -hmm. and 
I think maybe it took me a little while of reading to sort of get over that stuff. All of the sort of public media baggage attached to this. And that stuff, like, for a variety of reasons, that didn't impact my reading of the original series. One of those Mm -hmm. reasons was that as a child, I was not aware of it in the same way. And also Rowling wasn't the same kind of celebrity Mm -hmm. when those early books came out as she is now. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I feel like I just had a kind of opposite response where I just checked out of the public conversations about Cursed Child and then approached the book like I was dead inside. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really really good hermeneutic. Hermeneutic of soul death. I am reading this book now. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. I cried during this book like seven or eight times. It just wasn't until later. Okay. Okay, the show's about to start. So as the house lights dim, pull out your programs and get ready for a deep dive into print culture and the materiality of texts in Flourish and Blots. Okay, you want to talk about the notes that we left ourselves early on in reading this book. So I started to read this book and one of the first things that had struck me when I picked up the book was, wow, this is awfully long for a play. Mm -hmm. I've read a number of plays in my life. I have... A bound copy of Angels in America Parts 1 and 2, which is six hours worth of theater. And it is substantially slimmer than this. Yeah. Uh, So I was like, wow, how long is this play? So you open it up and there's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Parts 1 and 2. Flip the page. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Part 1 and 2. Flip the page. Dedications. Flip the page. (laughs) Contents. Totally unnecessary contents because there's four things in this book. Flip the page. Harry Potter and the Cursed Shell. Parts 1 and 2. It's the third time this title page has been repeated. Mm -hmm. At which point I wrote, a huge amount of effort has been put in to making this book cost $40. Oh, yeah. Were this any other play, this would have been released as a volume a quarter this length. Mm Mm-hmm. This is, you know, closer to sort of a Shakespeare style or a classic play in in, in its materiality because mm-hmm. it is clearly meant for people to sit down and read, not to put on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, though, unlike a good edition of a Shakespeare play, it doesn't have like a general introduction. Any useful it glosses have... or... I don't know, or footnotes yeah, to like Germanus Personae at the yeah. beginning. Like there's no list of who the characters are. Yeah. Like it's very much marketed as a novel, even though it's not a novel. We all know it's not a novel. And and like th- all of that, all of that paratext at the beginning puts a tremendous amount of effort into reminding the reader that this is not a novel. But like you've literally packaged it as a novel so and I was gonna I was gonna mention that the typeface too for the actual content is the same typeface in the classic Harry Potter books Ah. um, even though all of those like marker pages are different Mm -hmm. and don't have that same font that we come to associate with Harry Potter but yeah Yeah, yeah book design decisions were very strange because there is this attempt to market it as part of the series But yeah, the Harry Potter font isn't used on these title pages. Mm -hmm. And the book design, like the cover design, they made no effort to make it look anything like the rest of the series. So you can't shelve it next to the rest of the series and have any continuity. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would have been a challenge because like 
the versions that we have are not the versions that are being produced anymore. Correct. But yeah. nonetheless, yeah. it's like it's so physically coded as a standalone text, despite the fact that they made a great deal of effort to call it the eighth Harry Potter book. Mm-hmm. It is a very strange object. And um, the strangeness of it registered in, um, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, somebody was compiling a bunch of the early Amazon reviews oh. of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this really interesting through line where people kept saying, so they got their copy of the book and were alarmed to discover it was a play script because a lot of what? people were not following it closely enough. They just heard that there was a new Harry Potter book and oh pre-ordered it and then got it and were like, what the hell is this? I would never have considered what we did as following it closely until this moment right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You forget, you forget how tapped in we are. The way that people kept sort of wording their disappointment with the book was, I thought this was a book, but it's just a play script. So people weren't differentiating between novel and script. They were differentiating between book and script. And that mm. was really fascinating to me because it suggests how the sort of dominance of the novel as a genre in our current media landscape has caused novel and book to be conflated together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we, see, I mean, you see this in the classroom all the time, right? Students want to call everything a novel. But in this moment, it was people not saying, you know, I wanted a novel and I got a play. It was people saying, I want a book and I got a play. It's like, well, this yeah. this is a book. Yeah, this is more of a book than a play. <laughs> it is in fact like it is in fact a book that is in some ways a sort of remediation of a play yeah. and that itself has a very strange relationship to the reality of the performance. The sort of question is open around things and we'll talk about this in the next section, but like the question of who were these stage directions written for? Were these written with this reading audience in mind or were they written with the actors in mind? I really want to talk about that right now. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about it right now. It's still part of the materiality of it. Okay, great, great. Because surely not. Surely those are not the stage directions that the actors were handed. (laughs) If I were an actor and I were given the phrase, there's a silence, a perfect profound silence one that sits low twists a bit and has damage within it like fuck you well what the fuck does that mean (laughs) that's ridiculous that doesn't mean anything like okay i know i haven't been in a play since i was in high school and that's fine and i'm not trying to claim that i'm an expert in theater but what i can tell you is that That is a very lousy stage direction. (laughs) That is for readers who can't cope with not having the setting or the tone provided for them. Yeah. And I mean, surely the same goes for the description of time travel, Mm -hmm. which is repeated multiple times. Time stops and then it turns over, thinks a bit and begins spooling backwards. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not sure who that's for. Is it for us? Is it for us, the readers who are not seeing the play? Because if that's the case, I feel like you could have made a little more effort to flesh out more of the mm-hmm. scenes yeah. if you are reading, if you are actually writing a genre of stage directions that are for readers who are not physically seeing a play. Mm-hmm. But 
if that's not the case, if it's not for us, are, are we seeing the sort of pre-production thinking of a playwright and a director collaborating and starting mm. to put in signposts that are like, there's going to be a special effect here. And here's yeah. the feeling we want that special effect to produce. So, you know, I would find that infinitely more interesting than like sort of half-assed stage directions. Mm -hmm. um, I would be so interested in seeing the like textual back and forth between Rowling and who is it? Jack Thorne? Yeah. Whatever. All three of them. It would be yeah. so interesting to me to see like a textual back and forth like over the over the script. So I, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to things like the stage directions, it doesn't feel like there's enough for them to be interesting. And yet at the same time, I understand why they had to put something there. I think I just feel a little bit disappointed with the direction that they chose to take, which is like <laughs> inexplicable. Yeah, like dangling theater in front of your face, kind of, you know? I hate when people dangle theater in front of my face. I know, right? <laughs> so rude. It's so rude. Okay. Oh, wait. No, I remember I was going to say something. <laughs> not okay. Not okay. Not okay. I'm not ready to move on. Right. So on the one hand, it's like not enough. Um, uh -huh. But on the other hand, I feel like when it comes to stage directions, it's almost like they're too much. They're too mm -hmm. um, controlling. And the, mm. the best comparison that I can think of is um, one of my favorite playwrights is Thompson Highway. Um, for those of you listening and are not familiar with him, um, he's an indigenous playwright in Canada. Uh, he's written The Red Sisters and Dry Lips Had a Move to Kappa's Casing and um, Ernesting Shoe Swap Gets Her Trout, among a handful of other texts. And the difference between Dry Lips Had a Move to Kappa's Casing and Ernesting Shoe Swap Gets Her Trout is the difference between a playwright who trusts his director and a playwright who is the director. Like in mm. Dry Lips Out of Move to Kappa's Casing, there's so much detail in the stage directions that there's very little room for a director to come in and make independent decisions about how to stage and set up that play. Yeah. Whereas Ernestine Shoeswap, on the other hand, it has some like really important information about the way that music functions and the way that um, props function, but it's really, really minimalist at the same time. And so I feel kind of like... I would have liked something more in either of those two directions. And I feel like we got something right in the middle, which isn't very good. I agree. I, I um, I'm struck by, again, a number of modern playwrights I have read. Some of them are very famous for having been really controlling about the production of their plays. So mm -hmm. I think if I'm thinking about it right, I think Tennessee Williams is one of the ones I'm thinking of mm -hmm. who wrote these like incredibly detailed, incredibly specific, like he walks into the room, he's wearing an outfit that looks like this. He stands yeah. in this corner. The stage looks like this, like mm -hmm. so, so, so specific. Um, so you can really see the stage. You can see the movement of the actors around the space. You get yeah. a very clear sense of like, this is something that is happening on a stage with a set of props. Mm -hmm. You know, you can sort of see it unfolding in front of you. Mm -hmm. And then the, opposite extreme of that is this German playwright Heiner Müller who wrote these plays that are like 15 pages long <laughs> but in production would be like two hours Wow! because he literally wrote 
the words. Yeah. And he was famous for saying, like, I'm the playwright. It's not my job to tell you what it's going to look like. That's yeah. the director's job. Yeah. And those are also really fun to read. They're fun. Like, poetry is fun to read. There's mm-hmm. a huge amount of filling in and imagining around the space between the words that you end up doing. Mm-hmm. And both of those are pleasing reading experiences in different ways. And this, as you were saying, I found this a bit frustrating mm-hmm. for how there's too much to really let me imagine and not enough to really let me see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will be very interested to see how different the special collector's edition is going to be because they're going to re-release this after, I don't know when, but like after previews are done and mm-hmm. once the play is sort of finalized, quote unquote. So maybe that's yeah. going to be substantially more fleshed out. This is just me sort of hypothesizing, but I wonder if they'll release it when they take the show on the road, um, when hmm. it leaves London and like moves to Broadway or to Toronto's equivalent, the Mervish Theatre. <laughs> <laughs> the Broadway of Canada. Oh, oh Mervish. Uh, do you want to see it? I do. Yeah, I really do. So like for all of the complaining that I'm doing about this i do really want to make clear that i enjoyed reading this very much um mm-hmm. i'm really i'm this is a strange word to use and i wouldn't have i wouldn't have expected to use it but here i am i'm really grateful for this play um oh, so that gave me a tender feeling <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh oh no why? okay i'm gonna need a hand here there's like 12 people on stage right now and I have absolutely no idea who's narrating. Do plays even have narrators anymore? Am am I the narrator? Let's hash this out in The Boy Who Narrated. Okay, so let's talk about what has happened to the entire narrative premise of the Harry Potter series with this play. Mm -hmm. Hey Marcel, what happened? (laughs) Well, it's gone. (laughs) Sure Uh, is. A play script is a really interesting way to abandon first-person omniscient narrative perspective in a way that isn't a film, because a film, like Neil has told me... (laughs) (laughs) As I know from Neil. As I know from Neil, the camera functions as a kind of eye, but plays don't have that. You are absolutely right that the relationship between reader and text is very different from the relationship between audience and what's happening on the stage. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you know, insofar as we are still functioning in a relationship between reader and text, Mm -hmm. um, this play could have worked to stay inside the head of Harry, or it could have shifted that focus to Albus, Mm -hmm. you know, and let us see the world through his perspective and see how things look different through his perspective. But it, it didn't make that decision. It no. it has moved outside of the perspective of any particular character. You know, we get to see Harry and how he feels about things and Albus and Scorpius mm-hmm. and Hermione and, you know, and it's really we are in the hands of an omniscient narrator mm-hmm. and the omniscient narrator is the one who is giving us those stage directions right. who tells us how the characters are feeling in moments. Yeah. The one exception would be Harry's dreams, right? Because we mm. do have these occasional scenes where Harry dreams of things that are concurrent 
it's weird. It's not really like he's telling the future. It's like he's just seeing the present. That's yes, that is very strange. Plays can place the audience in different relationships to knowledge of what is unfolding on stage. Mm -hmm. And you see, you know, a lot of modernist theater really likes to screw with that and put Mm -hmm. the audience in a position of unknowing and confusion Mm -hmm. deliberately. And this, The Cursed Child, as you pointed out in our discussion before we started, feels more Shakespearean in the sense that the audience is in a position of privileged knowledge a lot of the time. Yeah. So we get a lot of opportunities for dramatic irony as a result. Okay, so maybe, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the, like, Shakespeareanness of the of the play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was really struck by Ron's comment about his puckish sense of humor, because that's a direct allusion to Shakespeare's puck, Sure is. And we've we've sort of pondered in the past about whether or not the wizarding world knows about Shakespeare. And in this instance, they might not, but they still live in a world that knows about Shakespeare because somehow that turn of phrase has made its way into the wizarding world, right? Mm-hmm. But that aside, that's still an illusion that the audience is going to pick up on. Some of the audience. Like all illusions, it will only be readable to some. Yeah. So the smart ones, like me. (laughs) The good ones. The good, the good English. (laughs) The good English and the good colonized subjects. Mm -hmm. Yes. They will recognize that illusion for what it is. Yeah. And then similarly, if, if all of a sudden we've entered into a kind of Shakespearean world, then we can start thinking about how polyjuice functions less as a magic trick and more as a theatrical conceit in the same way that like disguises function right Mm -hmm. so when you're reading as you like it and you have that drawn out romance between Rosaline as Ganymede and Orlando and the whole time you're questioning whether or not Orlando knows that Ganymede is actually Rosaline or if Orlando is genuinely falling in love with (sighs) Ganymede. <sighs> anyway, mm-hmm. it's like this is basically what Polyjuice is doing here, except maybe more convincingly or compellingly. There's a particular kind of fun gender play happening on the stage in those original Shakespearean productions mm-hmm. when our female characters are dressed up as men, as they so frequently are, mm-hmm. because those are men playing women playing mm-hmm. men. Yeah. Um, And it's a different kind of interesting stage play happening with the Polyjuice Potion because you just have the actors play, you know, like the, you know, I'm sure it is the actor playing Ron who is playing Albus pretending to be Ron um, without the voice trick of the movies Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, Helena Bonham Carter, but with Emma uh, Watson's voice. Emma Watson's voice. Exactly. It's just like straight up the actor playing Ron. I don't know any of their names. Um, Yeah. So you get that in sort of really intensity of disguise, which makes you feel, I would imagine particularly in the know as, as a, as a viewer. Mm -hmm. Um, But sort of to go back to, it is so hard not to constantly be imagining what the experience of seeing the play would be like, but thinking about it sort of just at the level of what is included in the text, we don't get those scenes of, gathering ingredients and brewing the potion Mm -hmm. like that's not the point here like you said it's not about the magic it's about 
the actual sort of wacky hijinks of misunderstanding and misrecognition mm-hmm. in the space of the stage, which yeah. does again go back to that uh to that Shakespearean trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's another trope that you recognized. <laughs> well, yes. One of the listeners had asked us our thoughts on the issue of consent, in particular when it comes to Polyjuice Potion, and um, was referring to the scene when Ron is kissing Hermione, but it's not actually Ron, it's actually Albus. Um, and I had I had remarked that that was like a G-rated bed trick. Um, <laughs> but now in this conversation, it's actually even more complicated than that because I mean, we're making a lot of assumptions, but I feel like we are correct that it is the actor who (laughs) plays Ron who is playing Albus Ron. Yeah, not like the actor who plays Albus wearing a red wig. (laughs) And like a long trench coat (laughs) and standing on top of somebody else's shoulders. I take it back. That's clearly how it was staged. So I feel like it's a completely different thing to watch the same actor play both the impersonator and the person who's being impersonated, it, it like erases the grossness of a bed trick because it allows you to have the illusion that it is the same person. You and the audience can like pretend that you were deceived in the same way that the character who is being deceived is deceived. Um, but that doesn't make it okay. You're like still complicit in this act of... This act of like non-consensual yeah. touching. Yeah. That thing. Uh, yeah yeah because you are what you are seeing on stage is ron and hermione kissing but what's actually happening is that hermione is being fooled into sexual contact with somebody who is not the person she believes she is mm -hmm. touching and that's that's fucked up guys yeah and even the nature of fake ron's touching is like really weird right because there's a lot of talk about how he's using his hips to block her isn't it incredible how like we can't do comedy without rape culture like isn't it just incredible (laughs) how unable to grasp like physical comedy we are without without incorporating rape culture into it it's just it's mind-boggling and it's remarkably out of character for this teenage child who seems otherwise not particularly sexually mature Mm -hmm. to be entirely ready to assault his aunt which i guess is supposed to make us think that this is all in good fun the way that all rape culture is supposed to be all in good fun anyway let's talk about time travel i love time travel this has been a lot of people's complaint is like, why why structure a narrative around the messiness of time travel? But I, I also love time travel. Mm-hmm. I also find time travel fascinating. I am not interested in um, getting caught up on the like issue of paradoxes. Mm-hmm. I am interested in how time travel functions as a narrative mm-hmm. device that allows us to see and imagine the world differently. Yeah. And I think that this whole text this whole story does that really beautifully. Yeah. As much as I love a funny turn of phrase and really enjoyed seeing Harry Potter and that's not how time travel works as like a Twitter meme. I actually am really into the way that time travel functions in this play. So our erstwhile tech support. Hi, how are you doing? Trevor Chow Fraser and I have an ongoing battle about how time travel functions which i think is amazing because literally time travel isn't real so like time travel doesn't function away 
So I'm going to explain the way that I understand time travel, and I think it's probably going to infuriate a lot of people who have more sophisticated readings of time travel, and I want you to know that I'm okay with that, and I think it's okay that we think about time travel differently. Mm -mm, So the way that I understand time travel is deeply informed in the way that time travel functions in The Time Traveler's Wife. (laughs) There's a moment in the book when the main character is explaining that When you go back in time, you cannot actually change the future because you only do what you always would have done. At no point, whether you go back in time or you go forward in time, can you actually change the course of events? It's a very like fatalistic kind of reading of time travel, but that's a reading of time travel that I feel very comfortable with and makes a lot of sense to me. So basically what's happening in The Prisoner of Azkaban is that they go back in time and they do exactly the thing that happened in the present moment. So timeline A and timeline B are actually the same timeline and they just happen to intertwine with one another. Mm -hmm. And where Trevor and I get into arguments is he and many people who agree with him see these as separate timelines and that one of those timelines ends as soon as the other timeline takes over. And now that Mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense to me because how can one timeline end? Like people don't just stop existing. So obviously they merge. That's how I understand time travel. So like, yeah, things change, but in the end, we're going to meet back up. Yeah. And so that's the only way that I can conceive of time travel actually functioning. I don't know how to explain it, but it makes sense to me. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, if you want to create a linear narrative, then ultimately, yes, things need to keep weaving back together. Mm -hmm. Where I don't necessarily agree with not with your reading but with sort of the version of time travel presented in the time traveler's wife (laughs) and in this play is that sort of fatalistic Mm -hmm. feeling the sort of the sense of inevitability the sense that anything other than the way that things did turn out is bad Mm -hmm. and needs to be corrected and that when we see other timelines, when we get glimpses of them, they're all worse than timeline A. Yeah. Um, and that's that sort of opens a question for me because the drive of this play seems to be against changing mm-hmm. things. It seems to be towards recognizing that even though the world that you live in is complex and messy and imperfect, you cannot go back and change things. You have to just deal with what you mm-hmm. have because prisoner of azkaban is about the fact that absolutely you can go ahead and change things (laughs) you just go right ahead and make that different and in fact you need to imagine the world as something that is open to editing Mm -hmm. in that way so that seems while i agree that the actual logic of how time travel works is not different between the play and the The book, book i think that the message is really that's different. That's true. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. I actually hadn't thought about it that way. I also want to make very clear that I think that a kind of fatalistic perception of time travel is not as interesting as a more mm-hmm. like going out there and making changes and like a kind of view of time travel that doesn't depend on the like perfect imperfection of the timeline in which we live already. So I'm not yeah. interested in conservatism. <laughs> I just... I just can't wrap my head around <laughs> wait, a timeline disappearing. Wait, what? 
<laughs> I can only wrap my head around that timeline never having existed in the first place. I mean, that, that version of time travel where, like, you went back in time, you did something different, you've changed the timeline now, and so you will never reconverge with the future in which you went back in the first place. Mm-hmm. We're just getting into some some quantum physics shit that oh, I am yeah. not, even, not, not even interested in trying to wrap my head around. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't even want it. No, thank you. <laughs> don't like it. <laughs> so let's talk about a little bit about those kinds of arguments I was just articulating, particularly the um the argument that that part one makes that without things playing out in ron and hermione's relationship exactly as they did in the books the two of them Mm -hmm. don't end up together so this is a quote from scorpius he says without crumb ron never got jealous and that jealousy was all important and so ron and hermione stayed very good friends but never fell in love never got married never had rose Mm -hmm. um you know and we'll talk later on in particular about the unhappy version of Hermione mm-hmm. that we see in this play. But that like that version of time travel, which is a thing you see all the time, that like if this one particular thing doesn't happen, then nothing else will. Mm-hmm. That's um I don't like that version of the world yeah. because that does that also doesn't match my understanding of how human relationships work. Yeah. That like if we had not met in this moment, then we would never have been friends. It's like, well, like they had ample opportunities to fall in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that idea especially boring for love stories. Because if you need one specific crisis of jealousy to spark your long-term relationship, yeah, what is your, your relationship is literally based on jealousy. And that's... Mm-hmm not that's not interesting it also suggests that this is only occurring to me now that like it's ron's jealousy so it gives all of the agency to ron Mm -hmm. as the desiring party and means that unless hermione is specifically positioned to him as sexually available via the gaze of another man Mm -hmm. she will never become positioned in that way Mm -hmm. and will become a spinster because nobody will want her. Yeah. In shirking off Crumb's advances, she would have then, like, cast off all sexual availability. <laughs> you say no to one yep. man, you say no to it, all spinster for men. life. <laughs> Hashtag not all men. Hashtag spinster for life. <laughs> I wonder if it's possible... To read against that interpretation that Scorpius and Albus have as being purely the understanding of love from from teenagers who like don't understand the complexities of how like adult relationships work and form and blah, blah, blah. And the play does encourage you, I think, to read that without that crisis of jealousy and crumb. They never get together. But I do think that there's also room to be like, no, things are probably more complicated than that. But like these These are just teenagers. Yeah. What am I doing? Believing the voices of teenage narrators. I know better. (laughs) You know better. (laughs) I know better than that. I mean, no, but the play, the play does definitely lean in that direction. But I'm going to say that we can resist that. Okay. One thing that I just want to put out there. Mm hmm. I just want to put it out into the world <laughs> and express with like the biggest eye roll gif 
is when Albus expresses his uh, discomfort being seen with Harry at the Hogwarts Express uh-huh. at the start of his second year. This is page 22. And Harry's like, Well, second years don't like to be seen with their dads, huh? And Albus is like, No, it's just you're you and I'm me. And, and then Harry's like, It's just people looking, okay? People look. And they're looking at me, not you. And I was like, Fuck off, Harry. <laughs> Die in a fire, Harry. <laughs> That's what, you know what, that actually reminds me of a thing, a thing that I noted. The first scene is like a reproduction of the epilogue of Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. There's a joke in Deathly Hallows where everybody is staring and Ron says, oh, they're staring at me. I'm extremely famous. Mm-hmm. And that's a joke in Deathly Hallows because they're obviously staring at Harry because he's extremely famous. Mm-hmm. But in the rewrite of that scene for the play, all three of them are famous. Mm-hmm. They get stared at when they're together. And further to that, Ron has already drawn unnecessary attention to himself by doing a dumb magic trick. Albus says, everyone's staring at us again. And Ron says, because of me, I'm extremely famous. My nose experiments are legendary. Mm-hmm. And so that it actually reframes that, like, Harry's not the only one who gets stared at. They all get stared at. Hermione's mm-hmm. the fucking minister of magic. Like, yeah. she gets stared at when she's out in public. Um, Ron is, you know, this sort of minor wizarding celebrity in the sense that he runs this joke shop and he dresses in a wacky way and mm-hmm. he does, you know, funny magic tricks in public. And so then Harry's insistence that he's the one being stared at becomes extra douchey because mm-hmm. it's like uh you are actually not the only famous person here <laughs> yeah oh, yeah Harry. also like way to try to make your kid feel better by like <laughs> reducing him to a secondary character like you may not know this harry but albus is albus is literally one of the main characters of this story <laughs> you You have become a substantially less interesting protagonist, Harry. I hate to break it to you. Hey, Marcel, I've got a joke for you. I'm ready. What does theater and pedagogy have in common? I don't know. What? They both primarily consist of old white guys standing on a stage saying things I don't care about. Potions Potions class. class! So how are we going to do this since we barely spend any time in the classroom? (laughs) Well, so we get almost no traditional pedagogy in this book, with the exception of the scene of Hermione as potions master, which we are actually going to talk about in Granger Danger. Mm -hmm. So we have proposed to actually talk about parenting. Mm-hmm. Since one of the major departures of this book from the rest of the series is that while the rest of the series centers around Hogwarts and the experience of our relationships to our teachers in our school, mm-hmm. this book is really more about parenting and our complex relationships to our parents. Yeah. So let's talk about these characters as parents. Okay. I would like to start off by talking about the difference between Hermione and Lily as mothers. Um do you want to include Ginny in this too, or do you want to talk about Ginny in a sorry, separate? Ginny? Oh, I you meant, meant Ginny. Ginny instead of Lily. <gasps> that's so <the> Freudian. <laughs> because that's what Ginny has become, right? Yeah. Like, so a conversation that happened 
in and around the the WP Curious Child hashtag was somebody asking if Ginny was a stay-at-home mother mm-hmm. and was being um, opposed to Hermione as the working mother. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else pointed out that, no, there is a single reference to Ginny having a job. Mm-hmm. She is the editor of the sports page for the Daily Prophet. Yeah. But that is it. Other than that, you never see Ginny at work. You never hear Ginny talking about work. Ginny has no co-workers. Ginny has no identity as a professional. Mm -hmm. She functions solely as parent and spouse. Yeah. As opposed to Hermione, who we almost never see parenting Mm -hmm. and almost exclusively see in professional contexts. Yeah. So my sense is that that's almost more fraught than if Ginny was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Because essentially what that opposition is suggesting is that women can have important careers and still be able to prioritize taking care of their family. But in that case, it's not at all fraught and they don't ever have to worry about it or think about it or be troubled by it. Whereas Mm -hmm. Hermione's anxiety about whether or not she and Harry are spending enough time with their families like we get the impression that ron does more of the parenting than she does i just wish that it wasn't placed in opposition to Ginny, who appears to have no trouble balancing both a career and parenthood Mm -hmm. and also in balancing both a career and parenthood the result is that you don't know anything about Ginny's professional life whatsoever And also, you never see her struggle as a parent. Yeah. The only struggles Jenny has as a parent is helping to facilitate the relationship between her husband and her son. Mm -hmm. So even though Jenny is described by some of the characters, including by Harry, as like fun-loving and brave, all you get of her is like she's just a facilitator. Yeah. Like she she has no function of her own. Because she has no struggles. Yeah. I guess the the one benefit to this being a script and not a novel is that that lack of description does leave a lot of room for the director to flesh that out. But yeah. when you're reading it, that absence is not necessarily much of a space for imagination. Draco implies that she's the editor of the Daily Prophet, not the editor of the sports pages. And she has to actually correct him that she doesn't edit the whole thing. But Mm -hmm. that may just speak to how little Draco cares about the Daily Prophet and how much he just reads the sports pages. (laughs) I really hope that's the case. (laughs) That's amazing. And it's a good job. I I like the job that she ended up with. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, obviously, there is the argument to be made that like Ginny is full of struggles of her own and interesting relationships to her work and to her parenting, but we just don't get to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, she just remains a really unfleshed out character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unsatisfying for me. You know, one of the things that makes the modeling of pedagogy in the rest of the series interesting and exciting to read is that it shows you how teachers shape your life, but never have this purely deterministic relationship on you. Mm-hmm. And, That's because you have this relationship to your teachers where they're these major adults in your life, but also they are only part of one part of your life Mm -hmm. and, you know, you don't have a biological relationship to them, etc. And there's something by sort of shifting the focal relationships to those of parenting rather than of teaching 
in this story, there's a lot more of that, like aspects of your relationship to the adults in your life that are totally outside of your control because they are biological Mm -hmm. and the anxiety that accompanies a lack of biological similarity. Albus's assumption, for example, that Harry likes James more as a son because James is more like him Mm -hmm. and the ways that Rose really just resonates as a combination of Hermione and Ron Mm -hmm. and the fact that Scorpius, even though he is clearly nothing like his father Mm -hmm. is still, you know, he's still a Slytherin because Malfoys are Slytherins. Like there's this sort of really deterministic relationship that that these kids have to their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And it comes through in some ways the most clearly for me in the line where Albus is talking to Scorpius and sort of trying to reassure him that he doesn't believe the rumors that Scorpius is Voldemort's son. Mm -hmm. You know, he's saying that you're, you're a kind person. And he says, I don't think Voldemort is capable of having a kind son. Right. You know, which reminds me of comments that people have made in the past that like, Voldemort is the way that he is because he was a product of rape and that Mm -hmm. like our parents have this deterministic impact on us yeah which is just a really really troubling modeling yeah yeah I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So there is, there is part of this play that um, does really seem to resist this notion of biological determinism that I think otherwise the play can very uncomplicatedly project and that people seem really drawn to when it comes to the idea of parentage and like kids being like their parents blah blah Mm -hmm. blah um and it is the part when it's after draco and harry have gotten into that big fight in their kitchen um and then Ginny comes in and then draco apologizes for messing up Ginny's kitchen uh but then but then Ginny corrects him and says that harry does most of the cooking oh god yes that's so true okay you know what? I'm also grateful for these tiny little things. Yeah. Yeah. There's good moments. Tiny little things. So Harry's talking about his need to protect Albus. And Draco is responding and saying that his father thought that he was protecting him. And he talks a lot about loneliness. Mm-hmm. And he says that he was really lonely and that it sent him to a truly dark place. And that Tom Riddle was also lonely. Mm-hmm. And that Harry can't understand that because he always had two best friends. So what Draco says is, I think, like, probably the most important message, which is that Tom Riddle became Lord Voldemort because he never stopped being lonely. Yeah. And... I think it's really unfortunate that that is so easily I mean, I guess, like, biological determinism is just so easy for us to turn to. It's so easy for us to just, like, well, yeah, but his father was a Nazi, so he's probably a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah. And it is is in the character of Draco that I think that we get the most interesting complication of these narratives of inevitability and what you inevitably are. We're going to have to talk about it more in the second part when we see Draco Mm -hmm. in timeline three c i don't remember how i'm labeling these timelines c timeline c timeline c but uh 
I think that this is a really, really beautiful moment. The same one you're talking about. It's page 136, in case people want to find it. The end of Act 2, scene 15. I don't think that the Draco in this play is at odds with the Draco in the books, which some people have suggested. I think that instead what we get to see is that parenting and that kind of relationship has given Draco a different perspective on his own childhood mm-hmm. and has helped him to understand that like his experiences were not inevitable and that he can actually imagine other possibilities for his son. And even while, you know, the first Draco that we see in the play is one who doesn't like the way that his son is turning out because mm-hmm. um, it's not like him in this scene, we do see, a version of him that just wants his child to be happy oh whatever that looks like and who understands that you know that our children are not people who we have total control over that they are just different people in our lives mm-hmm. i find that seem really beautiful both because as you suggested like it's one of the lovelier messages in this story mm-hmm. um but also because i am really excited to see the way that characters like draco are given the opportunity not to be like simplistically redeemed, but to be complicated mm-hmm. to be just be made more interesting than they were allowed to be as children being represented to us through the eyes of other children. Yeah. Yeah. Like exactly. they're adults now and they're not just all good guys, but they're like nuanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. There are a lot of things that I love about the theater. The lights, the glamour, the structural sexism and racism of casting policies. So I guess it's time to head to the Forbidden Forest to talk about bodies and the systems that oppress them. Let's talk about the number one question we were asked most Mm -hmm. by listeners, which is exactly how gay are Scorpius and Albus for one another? (laughs) Okay, so we have a lot to say on this topic, obviously. (laughs) And the first thing that I want to say is that nobody is wrong. (laughs) So like, the people who are reading this and are like, no, they're just friends. And the people who are reading this and are like, they are like mega in love. None of you are wrong. You are all correct. I do think that this book, I described it earlier as reading like an It Gets Better project. So like... (laughs) (laughs) It is most definitely available to the reading that like two young, lonely boys who feel isolated and lost in the world find one another and fall in love and everything is going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's for sure what's happening here. I think a queer reading is like really, really available and really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. But I also like... I totally hear the calls to queer baiting, which actually, mm-hmm. Hannah, you looked up the definition of queer baiting. Do you want to? Yeah, I'm going to read, read this. Um, so one listener asked whether or not their relationship uh, was functioning as queer baiting and queer baiting is, and I quote, 
a term used to describe the perceived attempt by canon creators to woo queer fans and or slash fans, but with no intention of actually showing a gay relationship being consummated on screen. So Mm -hmm. it's recognizing that within the fan community, there's a great deal of interest in seeing queer relationships um, and yet a desire to not actually foreground queer characters and their relationships in your text. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that you could see something like that happening in the relationship between Scorpius and Albus. I would like to remind people that their potential queerness is in no way fundamentally undermined by their attraction to women right you can be yes bisexuality is a thing it's, it's very a real, real it's a real thing that really exists <laughs> and these boys could be completely in love with each other and also attracted to some of the women that they are encountering um mm-hmm. but i also don't think as you said that the only way to read their relationship is as latent attraction to each other yeah so like I think it's really unfortunate that we live in a world where this play couldn't have just been a love story about these two young boys. Yes. Um, That we have to be suspicious because we know that that's not just a story that somebody could tell without having a world of hate rain down on them. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that that I think that that's really shitty. Um, At the same time, um, Hannah, you were talking earlier about how the lack of intimate friendships between male characters like leads to this turn to queer baiting right yeah that we it it's hard for people to look at the relationship between scorpius and albus because outside of romantic slash sexual relationships we almost never get to see pictures of men loving each other needing Mm -hmm. each other being heartbroken by each other you know like that that is the description at one point of them being having their Mm -hmm. hearts broken and Um, that is a version of intimate friendship that is very frequently depicted between women and that mm-hmm. we very rarely get to see depicted between men. I don't know. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that we get so many more representations of women's intimate friendships than men's? Um, because I think that I think that stories about women have tended to be written in the sentimental mm-hmm. um, and stories about men have tended to be written in the realist mode and realism doesn't have room capital r realism doesn't have room for feelings mm-hmm. yeah I, I i think it's just a question of genre and mm-hmm. our and our histories of of generic writing mm-hmm. yeah i think it is in part i would say also that uh patriarchy uh disavows <laughs> men's right. emotional registers and their ability yes. to experience intimacy outside of the bonds of particularly of heterosexual relationships mm-hmm. um which is why so frequently what we see in um, the relationships between men in popular culture today is uh, this homosocial triangulation, which is the Mm -hmm. way that two men who feel close to each other, the way that their relationship actually gets expressed is through shared attraction to or competition over a woman. Mm-hmm. And we see that in the original book series where yeah. the intensity of Harry and Ron's friendship and the complexity of that friendship becomes entangled with Ron's jealousy over Hermione and that mm-hmm. the only person who Harry can express the complexities of his feelings for Ron to is Hermione. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really amazing that in Scorpius and Albus, we get 
an intimate loving relationship between two men that doesn't have to be triangulated through a female character who does their emotional labor for them. Yeah, I agree with that. Although at the same time, it does feel to me like Albus's attraction to Delphi and Scorpius's attraction to Rose mm-hmm. are superfluous. And by superfluous, yes. I don't actually mean superfluous. I mean only there to reassure the scared readers and viewers that like, don't worry, this isn't a play about homosexuality. This yeah. is a play about pure friendship. Yep. Good old fashioned boys being boys. Yep. Friendship. But ultimately, you cannot read it like that because yeah. whether you want to read the relationship as queer or not, um, you certainly have to read the relationship as as intimate and emotionally yeah. charged mm-hmm. in a way that no introduction of token romantic interests can do away with. Yeah. You know, it's about yeah. the beauty of friendship. And I, if you told me here is a story about the beauty of an intimate friendship between two men, I would probably be like, I don't particularly want to read that story. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I loved reading this story. I loved yeah. getting to see what that, emotionally tender friendship looked like mm-hmm. for me i think that was largely because i really loved scorpius love scorpius um, elvis can yeah. kind of go go jump in a lake <laughs> yeah elvis is a lot more like his dad than i think he would like to believe oh and similarly if you had told me that this was the story of uh, a father and his son reconnecting i would be like Meh. <sighs> yeah, <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I don't care about any of these any of these things. Mm, nope. But I cared a lot about this story. Yeah, and Scorpius, he's amazing. He's so delightful and charming and awkward. And like, what is it that he says at the very beginning when like he meets Rose Granger Weasley and he's like, oh yeah, he says, hi, Scorpius. I mean, I'm Scorpius. You're Albus. I'm Scorpius. And you must <laughs> like, be. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And then the moment where he realizes they figure out who he is and he's like, hmm. You can leave now. It's like, oh no, Scorpius. Precious like baby, this is, why, no. this is why when people were like, after the mini-sode that Andrew and I did, which we actually recorded before the play had come out, but uh, mm-hmm. released after. It, and Andrea asked me who I thought the next Voldemort was going to mm-hmm. be, um, which in the next episode we will talk about this, but I actually think that I was pretty on the nose with my reading of how the sort of return of a Voldemort would play out in this world. Yeah. I suggested that it would be Malfoy's son. Um, right. And people were like, how could you say that about sweet Scorpius? And I was like, you know what? I take it back. I am so, so sorry. <laughs> so one of the other great pleasures of watching Scorpius and Albus as characters is that Unlike Ron and Harry, our protagonists in the original series, uh, Scorpius and Albus are nerds and outcasts. And that is like, I think insofar as anybody struggles to identify with Harry as a character, it is because he is this sort of like he's really good at sports and Mm -hmm. he might not always be popular, but sure as hell, everybody knows who he is and he's got lots of friends and it's a very different thing to read about Hogwarts through the perspective of people who maybe don't love Hogwarts that much and Mm -hmm. maybe don't fit in very well and maybe feel really weird 
compared to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, which I really, I really liked because I think that we do need more stories about <laughs> more stories that aren't Catcher in the Rye about <laughs> kids who feel like really, really at odds with the world that they're in. Um, yeah, and uh, and I, I also think that it's really interesting to make our protagonists nerds uh, when you think about the relationship between this text and the fan community sure really what i think about albus in terms of being a nerd because he's like not super smart um (laughs) so he's like a nerd without the brains i guess he's like a snape character but but snape was very smart and driven and albus isn't driven because scorpius we know is super good at potions and really smart and really nerdy um Mm -hmm. and albus is just kind of an outcast yeah he's just kind of a doesn't fit in weirdo and like those people exist and they are real people who like don't get to have characters who they can identify with so i think that that's awesome yeah freaks and geeks you know yes there are a couple other things we wanted to cover in this segment and one of them was ableism yeah so okay so there are two things that i want to talk about in terms of ableism um and one of them is the fact that we get the term lame like repeated at us a whole bunch of times in like the very beginning of the book Mm -hmm. Uh, not just among the characters but also in the stage directions Uh, and I had this moment where I read it and I was like oh are we still using lame that's interesting we sure are um and like I I know we are but in my mind, lame has the same place as the word retarded, which is a word that people use increasingly more sparingly, but like doesn't get included in the like grown up space of things because mm-hmm. grown ups know better now. But then when the when the stage directions reaffirm that it is a lame joke, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was gross and uncomfortable for me yeah Yeah, just Uh, an aside everybody stop saying lame yeah please so then at the same time i was also uncomfortable with the way that the play positions amos diggory as an elderly man Mm -hmm. um and i think like i'm some people might say that i'm grasping at straws here but i guess here's what i here's what i mean because amos diggory was cedric's father um, he doesn't actually need to be that old. He could be like in his 60s. Yeah. It's entirely plausible for him to be in his early 60s. Mm-hmm. But the play really has us reading him as elderly. And the way that the play signifies his elderliness is having him in a wheelchair. And I don't have a problem with the idea of Amos Diggory as an elderly man. But I just felt like when we're tossing around terms like lame in a casual way to describe something that's bad, and then the only inclusion of disability is to signify someone who is so old that they are no longer like a contributing member of society, yep. it builds together to create a really ableist text that I just did, I just don't think that there was any any need for it. I get that people living with disabilities are excluded from all kinds of literature and that's really shitty and i think it's even shittier when the inclusion of disabilities is only to amplify 
that exclusion. Yes. Yeah. No, that's really well said. And it's not, I mean, this is, this is a different register, but the representation of uh, Harry and Ron and Hermione as middle-aged characters is also, it's quite a boring representation of what it looks like to be in your late thirties going on 40, mm-hmm. which is like, what do you know about them? You know that they're overworked and tired and off sugar. <laughs> and it's just it's so funny because like the professors in the original books fail to be fully realized characters because the book is being narrated by children who do not see adults as fully realized characters which goes back to again why your call for a gritty hbo reboot that focuses on the storylines of the professors would be amazing um <laughs> But in this one, like, these are our original main characters. This is their story as much as it's the children's story. It's Mm -hmm. a chance to represent fully fleshed out adulthood. It does that a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, it does show us things like you are still learning and growing as an adult. You still have a complex relationship with your own parents as an adult. I liked Mm -hmm. that. But also... I just, I was so, I was so, I rolled my eyes so hard at the whole like, oh, we're off sugar right now. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. fuck off. I hate this. (laughs) Adulthood is dumb. (laughs) They're such middle-aged, late 30s people. They're Mm -hmm. so middle-aged for 37. It's no surprise that the next generation is represented as enfeebled. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're both... In our early 30s. Uh-huh. So we are like infinitely closer in age to like parent Harry, Ron, and Hermione mm-hmm. than actually, and Ginny would be like a year younger than them. So mm-hmm. she'd be even closer in age to us. And there's no excuse to going off sugar. <laughs> gonna have to insist How all these characters start eating sugar again. Honestly. Force feed Ginny milk duds. Uh, okay, I think that my oh wait do 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 Jew watch. I I don't think that there are any Jews in this right. book. I didn't see any. Okay, so the one last thing that I want to mention, and this is a really brief aside, but you know we talked at the end of the Deathly Hallows about how it seems like. Um, the post-Battle of Hogwarts world was about a reversion to the same rather than an improvement of any kind. And we get one brief reference that suggests to us that the world has in fact changed. And that reference is Bane, the centaur, talking about the fact that the Forbidden Forest has now been deemed centaur land and that mm-hmm. the students at Hogwarts are not allowed to use that space anymore. And so that's our one sign that like maybe post-Battle of Hogwarts things improved a little bit. Mm-hmm. The status of magical creatures um, or non-wizards within the wizarding world did in fact shift. And that we now live in a world that has a little bit more respect for the centaurs. What did you make of that? Also, I'm having a lot of trouble saying the word cent- centaur, centaurs. Centaur. <laughs> I don't know. I never know how to pronounce anything. Words anymore. are hard. So, okay, okay. So I guess the thing that sticks out to me the most is that um, if the Forbidden Forest is, we'll say, repatriated, it's interesting to me that they haven't changed the name to, like, 
centaur land or like <laughs> or something centaurville centaur language or something in centaur language exactly like some some kind of indication that oh we don't call it the forbidden forest anymore we called it that when it was like occupied land and now it's not i guess on the whole it like really disappoints <laughs> disappoints me <laughs> i feel like the theme of this book is i was grateful for it but it disappointed me <laughs> Okay, yeah, so theatre has historically had a problem with race and gender and non-normative bodies. But I think we can agree that contemporary theatre is a space devoid of all of those things. In fact, I'm not even sure what we'll find to talk about in Granger Danger. Yep, the end. No need to dally here. I think we should start off with uh, at least an allusion to, um, even though we've already talked about this in other contexts, the uh, the casting debacle. Right, the dis- the decision right. to cast Hermione and as an extension Rose um, as black, and mm-hmm. the anger that fans experience or that fans express as a result of being told that this character did not look the way that they had thought that she looked, and how revealing that was to so many of us of how. We continue to treat whiteness as the status quo, whiteness mm-hmm. as the default, that a character doesn't need to be marked as white, but must be marked as non-white. And that if you do not explicitly mark a character as a person of color, then it means that they are not, and you are not absolutely not allowed to imagine them that way. Yeah, I guess I don't really know what to say. Um, maybe the reason why I'm having such a hard time to think of anything to say is because like, this is like a stay in your lane kind of conversation where like the best that we can do as white women readers is to be like, it's actually not a problem to not cast a white person as Hermione. So everyone just like be fucking cool. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me because of the, um, the sort of tradition of race blind casting in modern theater. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the example that comes to mind readily for me as, as a person from Ontario is the Stratford festival mm-hmm. in Stratford, Ontario, which does in fact practice race blind casting. And you just have to fucking deal with the fact that you're watching Macbeth and Macbeth is white and lady Macbeth is black mm-hmm. and like, just get over it. That's how this is going to work. And the defense of casting Hermione as black was in part framed you know, by the production team as part of this this tradition of race blind casting. But I think there's a significance that Hermione is the only character who was cast, you know, in a way that surprised people. Okay. And yeah. I am I am curious to see how casting will play out in future productions of this play. Mm-hmm. If this is now going to establish like canonically within the cursed child, Hermione and Rose are black mm-hmm. or Hermione and Rose can be cast as white if some productions want to. Will we ever see a black Harry? Will we ever see a black Ron? Mm -hmm. Will we ever see, uh, you know, an Asian Mm -hmm. Harry? Like, will we actually see race-blind productions of this play? Will it turn out to be an opportunity to really complicate the sort of baseline assumptions of whiteness throughout Rowling's world? Or is this the one example that we're going to get? Do you think that race blind casting can be as effective as like deliberately casting 
non-white characters? No. You know, reading through this play, I am not convinced that it's written in a way that is race blind. In fact, I'm not convinced that race blindness is a thing that should be the goal of a text Mm -hmm. because any attempt to sort of write a character who is not specified in one way or another within white supremacy is going to default to whiteness as the status quo. Um, And I think in fact, what you need to do is write characters who are like deeply embedded in embodied experiences Mm -hmm. of being racialized I would have been infinitely more interested to actually have a Hermione who's like experiencing being minister of magic as a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I will bet that that is a really interesting part of the performance of this actor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I said, the, the, or we've had this conversation in regard to the original books, but you know, the, ability to imagine any of the characters however you want should never be used as a sort of replacement for actually writing diverse characters like yes i can come in and i can imagine characters as queer i can imagine them as people of color Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you can just not include queer people and people of color Mm -hmm. and disabled people in your books and just be like oh if you want to find space for yourself in this book just imagine it in (laughs) it's like "Mm, no you should actually be writing these characters although jk rowling has very recently proven herself to be an untrustworthy person to represent non-white people um Mm -hmm. so with that huge caveat yes okay so let's talk let's talk let's start off with hermione in this book okay we need to or Hermione in particularly in the first play, we get to see one of the alternate timeline Hermione's and that is Hermione as a mean spinster. Mm-hmm. And I, I am not, I, we actually didn't talk about how we felt about this representation, but I'm going to go ahead and say that I find the way that this narrative conflates being unmarried and childless with being petty and cruel and unhappy just enraging Mm -hmm. just enraged me yeah so that's really interesting to me because i really loved that hermione and i wonder if the reason why i did is because i'm reading it from the position of being literally married with children (laughs) you literally are that thing so like reading it mm, okay wait let me backtrack i think that you were totally correct in saying that the text is conflating being childless and unmarried with being like mean and miserable. I think that that is absolutely, absolutely correct. I think what's happening for me when I read that Hermione is that I can ignore that conflation and instead just be like, this is Hermione at her sassiest and her funniest, which I think is a reading again, like I said, I think that that's a reading that comes from Reading it from a position of, like, sanctioned heteropatriarchal dominance. Yeah, that thing. That's what I want to say. I think there's room for um, different readings of that Hermione um, that could be brought across in different performance decisions. Mm-hmm. One of our listeners tweeted at us and said that apparently, like, that that those scenes of Hermione um, 
brought her to tears. Mm-hmm. So clearly that is played as tragic in the current production. But you could also play that for humor mm-hmm. if you wanted. Like you could actually have a sort of triumphant version of Hermione as a like, I didn't get married. I didn't have kids. I didn't end up with Minister of Magic. So I finally get to be the Hermione who gives no fucks about everybody else yeah. and just gets to say what I've been thinking this whole time, which is, God, you are all so stupid. Yeah. But I am, as a, you know, adult, unmarried, childless woman, very aware of the way in which mm-hmm. the spinster figure is cast as always the bitter, the unsatisfied. Mm-hmm. And particularly when you pair that Hermione with the moment in which Harry tells McGonagall that she doesn't know what it's like <gasps> oh, to be yeah. a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, this story has very little space for people who do not have children. Yeah. And for imagining people who do not have children as also leading, like, fulfilling, rich, mm-hmm. interesting, complex lives. Yeah. Okay, so here I think is where my attempt to read Hermione as, like, just, like, badass and not giving any fucks is completely undone and it is the fact that ron and hermione still pine for each other and so instead of being like a fully realized and interesting character in her own right all of that sass and sarcasm and sadism (laughs) becomes the product of being bitter and lonely yeah okay so i just i wanna i wanna officially backpedal and again say that i was grateful for it and then it disappointed me. I have nothing I have nothing new to say about this yeah. except for like the argument that you do not get to be a full person without a romantic partner is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And I really I do not understand why an unmarried Hermione doesn't get to be Minister of Magic when we don't know anything about Fudge's personal life. Yeah, indeed. So like all of a sudden we get repetitions of stories that like unmarried women can be teachers. Mm-hmm. And that's it. In fact, are required to be teachers. Which, like, also, okay, can we also talk about, (laughs) can we also talk about the implication that, like, a person suddenly becomes, like, old and crotchety when they turn 40? I know we already talked about middle age in general, but, like, we use the term spinster very lovingly and joyfully when we talk about, like, our unmarried women friends. Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, that's not how society uses the term spinster. And sure That's isn't. not how Hermione is portrayed as a spinster. And so all of a sudden, like, why the fuck is 40 a, like, bitchy old spinster? Like, what? Like, have you met a 40-year-old recently? <laughs> like, did Sex in the City accomplish nothing? That's what I would like to know. <laughs> if nothing. I mean, it, it, it did accomplish very nothing. Little, no, accomplish very, very little. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's talk about back to timeline a Hermione Mm -hmm. um the fact that Hermione's daughter is Rose Granger Weasley Mm -hmm. but Lily's children Ginny's children but also Lily's children good point but also Lily's children Lily's children and Ginny's children are potters yeah Lily's children fuck Ginny's children i they are the same character. I mean, I they literally are. It. It's fine. You're They're not literally wrong. the same character. Uh, Ginny's children do not get to be Weasleys. Right. They are Potters. Yeah. Yeah. And that also really comes across in the way that, like, it's taken for granted that James is just like Harry. And so there are no problems there. And yet Albus, who's sort of, like, struggling to find himself, no one's ever like, oh, he's a lot like Ginny. Yeah. 
And that's like you failed to be like your father. And so you are no good. You are no good and no one. Um, So when we were talking about this beforehand, I had sort of commented that one of the things that really bugged me about the fact that Harry and Ginny's kids are just Potters and Rose is a Granger Weasley. So there's always just going to be one Potter. And because Ron and Hermione got together, they don't need to have any Grangers or Weasleys. It's okay to have like one person representing both Granger Weasley and it's supposed to be some kind of symmetry. And I just find that really stupid. Yeah, that comes across as well in the fact that like in timeline B, Ginny and Harry still got together and the Potter children still exist. But the real tragedy is the failure of Ron and Hermione to create you know, the Granger Weasley Mm -hmm. offspring, right? So it's like the inevitability of Harry's inheritance continues. Yeah. Oh, my God. And you know what? Okay, so Hermione doesn't have any children. And Ron has Panju, who I think we can, given the way that patriarchy functions in this play, we can assume is is Panju Weasley. But we only ever hear him referred to as Panju. And so his name sounds like his mother's, Padma. So we have a like very clear connection between mother and son. So the play also kind of invites us to think that Ron doesn't have any children either. Like he doesn't get Panju. Uh, He doesn't like him. He does not. It seems like it's got to be about inheritance and sort of continuing the Potter line because book Ginny is a Weasley Mm -hmm. and is every bit as much a feminist as Hermione Mm -hmm. is. And I do not buy that book Ginny would be like, I don't care about my kids having my last name. Yeah. I just wish so much that hyphenated last names weren't still fucking radical. Yeah. Like, I don't think that they're radical, but apparently they are. (laughs) It only struck me. Granger Weasley didn't strike me. It was Granger Weasley next to Potter that struck me. Yeah. That was like, well, why the hell aren't you Weasley Potter? Like, that doesn't make any sense. We're Potter Weasley. (laughs) Hannah, I'm beginning to suspect you don't actually know as much about the theater as you initially claimed you did. I'm going to have to send you to remedial theater classes, a.k.a. final revisions. For this segment, we're drawing on questions that you, dear listeners, asked us using the hashtag WPCuriousChild. If you still have questions after this episode, feel free to keep that hashtag going. Okay, are you ready? I am ready. Two word answers only. Does this play count as canon? Yes. Agreed. Relation between play and fanfic? Strong. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's here's the thing. Okay. It's canon because canon during the author's life is a thing that the author gets to claim. The thing is that we don't have to care about canon. Mm -hmm. So my for me, the interesting question isn't is this canon or not? Because, like, yeah, Rowling can say, like, this is what happens to the characters. And it's like, cool, that's canon. But, mm-hmm. like, the, the fun is to subvert the canon. Right. The fun is to be like, yeah, absolutely, that's what the canon says. And I'm going to go ahead and continue to imagine things differently. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Do you read this play as an attempt on Rowling's part to take control of narratives that have proliferated in uncontrollable ways via fan fiction? No, because I... I would be very surprised if Rowling 
cared that much about fan fiction. So my so my answer is no. Do I think that this play nods towards fan fiction or is structured in such a way to proliferate fan fiction? Yes. Like I think that that Rowling is aware of the ferocity of fan fiction in the Harry Potter community, mm-hmm. but I would be very surprised if this was an attempt to rein it in. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't buy the whole, like, this reads like fan fiction and therefore is not good. Mm -hmm. Like, I've been hearing that argument from a lot of people and the conflation of fan fiction and not a legitimate story is bullshit. Hey, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think Scorpius was sorted incorrectly? Should he have been Hufflepuff? Um, I'm actually, I'm surprised that Scorpius isn't a Ravenclaw because he's so clever. Uh, and, and Hufflepuff would also make sense because he's, he's very loyal and very like loyal to a fault and extremely hardworking in the sense of his relationship. I, I guess, so I don't really see any of the major Slytherin qualities in him. Um, so in that sense, it surprises me that he sorted into Slytherin, but I do still think that my understanding of Slytherin is like deeply informed by Harry's perspective of Slytherin, which is like so stereotypical and shallow. And like maybe Scorpius does have lots of like, I don't know, political ambitions or something. <laughs> so let's say if instead of reading Scorpius as missorted, we instead used Scorpius and Albus as characters to complicate and enrich our understanding of Slytherins mm-hmm. beyond Harry's perspective. Yeah. What new stuff do we learn about Slytherins as a result of these characters? Albus makes sense to me as a Slytherin mm-hmm. because when Harry gets sorted in book one, the sorting hat says to him, he's got something to prove. And that is a quality from the first book of Slytherin. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense to me for Albus, right? He like doesn't quite know who he is. He like wants to be his own person. He's got middle child syndrome. Mm -hmm. So for Scorpius, I guess the qualities that he demonstrates in Slytherin are his willingness to prioritize kinship bonds over... A sort uh, of greater good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is a really great way of being shown that, like, being a Slytherin is not all about selfishness. It is, in Mm -hmm. fact, a lot of the time about intense attachments. It's just a particular kind of attachment. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps an attachment that people outside of Slytherin find very threatening. Hmm. Maybe the kind of intense friendship that we see between Albus and Scorpius is, in fact, only possible between Slytherins. (gasps) Whoa. Mm. Yeah, because maybe the other houses are, like way too homophobic to have those kinds of uh, intense emotional bonds between two people of the same gender. Thanks, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 15A of Which Please. Can you believe we've gone back in time? Neither can we. It's the time turner. (laughs) The rest of our episodes are, as always, available at ohwitchplease.ca. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. Speaking of iTunes, special shout out to the beloved humans who have been reviewing us. Morgo Polo, Cookie Kia, Alicia N.A., Reagan Mary, Macamaniac, Abused Tampon, C47, Katrina Eve, aka Lit and Wit, and The Purple Coffee. And hey, 
if you really want to declare your undying love for us, why don't you start refusing to consume fluids out of anything that doesn't have our faces on it? Check out our mugs and other merch at society6.com slash oh witch please and that's society number six or you can find the link on our website special thanks as always to trevor chow fraser our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts hi how are you doing and a rainbow of heart emojis to everyone who's been tweeting at us despite the temporary hiatus in twitter lists foolish ola masha dutois ducklin Lloyd Pancakes, MC, Gwinny Pig, Akiko Tree 8, Aura Lurb, Triceratop, SG Wingo, Steph Harold, Plump Pucker, A Gold Chip, Greb Ditch, Sex in the Sydney, Andrea, how do you suppose that said? Joie Joie? Mm, you'll have to let me know. Tal Neg, Team Hobby Horse, Basil, Lee Bick, Patrick Cragg, H. Cassidy, Emily Hoven, Matt L.A. Schneider, Sickle Six, yeah, Alyssa K.B., B.R. Paba, Somewhat Bookish, Lib S. Coat, How Do You Hannah, Cat Manica, Haya Hullabaloo, Moon of Morris, Sarah Martinez, Corey Sheffman, Liba Jen, Soaks89, A. Oakenshield, J.G. Fool, a Suozo made herself queen. Udwick Rim, Laurel O'Neill, Amanda Crummins, Jasmine E. H. The Lulu Tree, Mad Peterson, Wool Pierogi, Sarah MRTS or Sarah Mertz, RT Puppy Dog, Marcia's Wisdom, Pewter Wolf Thirteen, Victoria S. Veronica U. K. Tamar Atkinson, Les Sourires, Alan Matley, C.C. Streeter, Bronwyn Fay, Ifia S., Tallulah Rising, Savoir Ferrist, J. Howen McBride, It's Allison Reed, Meryl Kate, Sherry B., Sirius Rachel, Ms. Megan, Sarah Hugo, A.B.K. Runs, Leslie M. Swayze, Alexa Viome, Stars Collide, Dr. Q Who, Christ and Popular Culture Podcast, Karinosaurus, Libby Sometimes, All Mad Here 27, Argata, Arlie Adlington, Theo Potterhead, Holly Dunn Design, Student of Whim, Today's Craving, Bianca Pinair, Jade Constable, Flowdot, Alexandra Koch, Serenity Then, Coffee Bisexual, Heavenly Evan, The Actual Megan, Roxy Rotary, Double First Name, Scriptorium Girl, Terry Lee McGarry, Matt Domville, Paige Knorr, Simply Yoles, J.V. Purcell, Kat Morissette, Lily Actually, Natalie Kismet, Paula Gabrielis, Mara Bobera, Pensif, Ali Karina, Neil Politan, Chillin' Kristen, Vanessa M. Zoltan, Sweet Tea Librarian, S. M. Mackin, M. W. Boyce, Scanlon Taylor, Liz Faw, J. Magnus, Isle of Van, After Three, C. Fairbarns, Blue Susan, L. Hoffer Design, Katerina Hoven, S. J. Kynes, Britz B., Sally E. Andrews, 
Kiss Me Hardy, Emily K. Compton, Freckles in April, Caitlin Sykes, Hi It's Me, Ashra Koletkar, Nikki McClayton, Miss Genders, R.K. McKinnon, Bookish Chick, Schneider and C, A.E. Lang, Olivian, Rach Rach, J. Andrew Dick, Lost in Transit, Barry Wrights, El Burgon, Christina Osborne, Glazebrook Girl, Caleb C. Gibbs, Lala Toadstone, Rose Maybe, Indigo Han, Tika Bell, Mandy Osborne, Richard Bromhall, Proletarian Arts, Hello, I Am Miriam, Cat the Book Nerd, Sophie Peppy, and My Book Jacket. There are too many of you. We love you all. All of you. We'll be back next episode with our discussion of the second part of The Cursed Child. But until then... Later, witches. Witches.